You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. We're going to begin in chapter 20 and verse 1. Follow along with me. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge for which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment until the death of him who is high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home to the town from which he fled. So... They set apart Kadesh in Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. And beyond the Jordan east of Jericho, they appointed Bezer in the wilderness on the tableland from the tribe of Reuben and Ramoth in Gilead from the tribe of Gad and Golan in Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the strangers sojourning among them that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation. Move into Joshua 21. Again in verse 1. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites came to Eleazar the priest and to Joshua the son of Nun, and to the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel. And they said to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, the Lord commanded through Moses that we be given cities to dwell in along with their pasture lands for our livestock. So by command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave to the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. The lot came out for the clans of the Kohathites. So those Levites who were descendants of Aaron, the priest, received by lot from the tribes of Judah, Simeon, and Benjamin, 13 cities. And the rest of the Kohathites received by lot from the clans of the tribe of Ephraim, the tribe of Dan, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, 10 cities. The Gershonites received by lot from the clans of the tribe of Issachar, from the tribe of Asher, and from the tribe of Naphtali, and from the half-tribe of Manasseh in Bashan, 13 cities. The Merarites, according to their clans, received from the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and the tribe of Zebulun, 12 cities. These cities and their pasture lands, the people of Israel, gave by lot to the Levites as the Lord had commanded through Moses. Now, a little insert of a summary here. Uh, Verses 9 through 40 are simply a detailed uh, description of the cities and the pasture lands that we just read about. 
Okay, so we've already read a summary, then you're going to get a detailed explanation of that. Um, each of the tribes gave a certain portion of their inheritance, their physical inheritance, um, to each of the Levitical clans. And so uh, verses 9 through 26, the Kohathites get theirs. Verses 27 through 33, the Gershonites get theirs. And then 34 through 40, uh, the Merarites uh, get theirs. And it's proportionate. Every area that is given, the cities that are given by Israel is proportionate to the size of those tribes and the amount of space they have. So without reading all of those names, that's my summary. I um, encourage you to go ahead and read it on your own if you'd like. I'm going to skip forward now to uh, verse 41 and read the final verses of our text. In verse 41 we read, that The cities of the Levites in the midst of the possession of the people of Israel were in all 48 cities with their pasture lands. These cities each had its pasture lands around it, so it was with all these cities. Thus, the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. This is an encouraging word, really. Um, I want to pray. Uh, please pray with me. Father, I thank you for your word. And uh, this morning, God, I ask that you, would, uh, um, that you would come and illuminate your word, speak to us through your word, uh, do a work of transformation in our minds and in our hearts through the preaching of your word, through the study of your word. God, I pray that you would do that. I pray that you would remove anything in our midst that would bring you dishonor and that would seek to uh, stop our ears from hearing from you or close our eyes from seeing the glory of the work of your son Jesus at the cross and the empty tomb. And I trust you to do that work. And I pray finally, Father, that you would uh, begin now to do that work inside of me, of course, as I preach, Father, that you would help me to preach your word and bring honor to your name and be helpful to your people, that you would remove from inside of me impurities and imperfections that would uh, seek to dishonor you and that you would help me um, to explain your word in a way that again leads us to a bloody cross and a doorway of an empty tomb with the hope of heaven in front of us. I pray that. I trust you to do that. Give us your spirit, we pray. And in Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> a question that uh, we begin with this morning is the question that most of us probably begin with uh, when we open a text of scripture, at least I hope it is the question we ask as we read scripture. The question simply is what's happening here and why is this so significant? Those are really two questions. What's happening here? What's happening in the text? And, and who really cares? Right? Like, what difference is it going to make anyways? So we're going to kind of deal with those two questions as we work our way through it. I want to start with that question, what's happening here? Uh, and you should see kind of a breakdown on the screen in front of you of what we've just worked our way through, right? First thing that we see happening in the text is in chapter 20 where the Lord comes and he speaks to Joshua. 
and he gives him some instructions, right? His instructions are simple. Tells him to go to the people of uh, Israel and then instructs uh, them to basically designate six cities of refuge for people who have committed accidental murder, man, slaughter, right? Um, that's kind of the first thing we see in verses 1 through 6. Those six cities are basically supposed to be set up all throughout the promised land so that each city is in close proximity to certain clusters of the tribes of Israel. It's going to make it relatively easy for a person, for a refugee, to make it to those cities before somebody can get to them and take them out due to their vengeful spirit, right? In the heat of the moment, want to make sure there's safety for someone who has fallen into this kind of sin. And so that's kind of the first thing we see happening. It's interesting to note in that section uh, that that refugee that makes it to that city is allowed to return home after the current head priest dies, right? Remember that? Verse 6. Um, most commentators, scholars have a tendency to believe and, and comment on that in saying if this, is a, this is a connection to Christ, that, that the death of Christ is what covers our sin and enables us to find the safety that we need. And so it's a picture in that priest of what's happening through that priest's death. That through Christ's death, we have safety, refuge from our sin. Okay? Um, so, uh, so what happens is uh, uh, the Lord here is just simply instructing Israel to set up some safe cities of refuge. Um, so there's safe cities of refuge for people who commit accidental sin, specifically killing someone that they didn't mean to kill. You can go back, you can do some of the research in, um, I think, Deuteronomy and other places where you'll read about specific things, like you're chopping down a tree in the wilderness, and the axe head flies off, kills your buddy. What do you do? Don't hang around because his family's going to come kill you because they're now the Avengers of blood and they're ticked, so you need to get yourself to a safe place. Um, and there's all sorts of other um, examples um, for this uh, in those places of Scripture. So in, in this section, what we see is the, Israel's, the Israelites just get right on it. Okay? Um, Joshua goes and gives them the instructions. They jump right on it. They appoint Kadesh, Shechem, Kiriath Arbor, which is Hebron, uh, Bezer, which I always think is kind of a crazy name. Uh, reminds me of an old rock band. Uh, Ramoth and Golan, which reminds me of the guy from the Lord of the Rings. Um, and so uh, those six cities uh, get designated by, um, by the Israelites uh, for cities of refuge. Second thing that we see happening uh, in this text is the Levites come in chapter 21, right? The, the leaders of the Levites, those clans, come to the leaders of Israel and they simply ask for the cities and the pasture lands that have been promised to them. You see that in verses 1 through 3, chapter 21. And you might remember, um, if you've been with us through your, this study of Joshua, and if you've read the book of Joshua, you might remember that the Levites, all throughout Joshua, uh, they didn't receive an inheritance like all the other tribes of Israel. Um, and if you, uh, if you go back to chapter 13, verses 14 and 33, uh, you'll see specifically that they're not going to receive an inheritance. They didn't, they're not going to receive a portion of land like the other tribes did. Uh, they're, they're, they're not going to get this, 
uh, area of land that they can call their own, that they can hang their uh, tribal banner on, so to speak. Um, instead, as you go back and look at chapter 13, you see that the Levites received um, the Lord himself as well as the responsibility to be ministers. That's their inheritance, ministry and God. Think about that for a second. <coughs> but the reality about the Levites is they still need a place to live. Okay? <coughs> still need a place to live. They need a place to minister from. They need a place to a way to sustain themselves. To, they need a livelihood, basically. Um, and so the Lord disperses the Levites strategically. Don't forget that word, as I think that's all over this. It, it's not in there, but there's a very strategic thing that is happening here as God disperses the, 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 the Levites all throughout the Promised Land. He does this so that they can live and minister while being sustained by the gifts of the tribes that they served. And so you kind of see that spelled out in verses 4 through 42. Um, in all, there's 48 cities with their pasture lands are given to the three clans. There's three clans. Uh, one of them is kind of split in half. Uh, the first clan, the Kohathites. Some of that clan are descendants of Aaron. There's lots we could talk about there, but it would be really unfruitful for our time and the, the amount of time we had this morning. So... Those 48 cities, those pasture lands given to those three clans of Levitical priests. Finally, third thing that we see in the text is basically a closing statement, right? Kind of the last thing you heard me read and that we read together, verses 43 through 45. In that closing statement of the text, we hear that the Lord gave the land that he had promised to the Israelites. He gave it to them. He gave them rest on every side. He gave them victory over their enemies. Not one of God's promises failed to come true. Everything happened just as the Lord said it would. So that's broad overview of what's happening in the text, what we've just read, what we've just seen. Next question. Somebody should know what the next question is. What's the next question we're asking? What difference does that make? Right? First question was, what's happening here? Second question is, who cares? Right? Big deal. Like, great, thanks. Got a bunch of head knowledge. Can go argue about the fact that one tribe had two portions and you got some Aaronites in there. I don't even know if that's their name. Um, who cares? What, what difference is going to make for you and I sitting here today if God's word is living and active and breathing and true, what difference is it going to make for you and I? Um, we've just learned that God instructed Israel to set up safe cities for manslaughter refugees, right? The Levites have received their cities to live and to minister in. We learn that God is a giver whose promises never fail. You could summarize this with three words, safety, worship, and promises. Safety, worship, and promises. God is a, uh, a strategic about creating safety. He's strategic about that. God is serious about the administration of worship. He's serious about worship. What God promises, God makes happen. So those are the three headings we're going to work with uh, for the rest of our time together. Safety, worship, 
promises. I want you to think about uh, safety for a few more minutes. Um, how, how important is safety to you? Just deep down inside, I want you to just think about that on a scale of one to 10. How important is safety for you? But for some of us, safety is at the top of our list of what's important, right? And for others of us, safety is not a big deal at all, at least for the risk takers in the room. There's a few of us. I'm not talking, though, um, really about the ability to take risks or to play it safe when I'm talking about safety. So I'm not really thinking that direction to maybe guide our thoughts. Uh, I'm talking about the deep desire that I think we all have for some kind of safety. Uh, you could use the word security um, might uh, help us as we think our way through it. Um, the reality is that all of us have some kind of a desire deep down inside to be safe, to know that uh, at the end of this life we'll be safe. Death is a scary thing for, for most of us uh, that kind of can bring up this desire for safety, for security, wondering what's going to happen in the next life. I, I'm certain that each of us in this room uh, face different seasons, varying levels of, of some kind of fear or, or introspection as we think about what the future may hold, right? Um, we worry about our health. Uh, we, uh, we fear that the stock market might crash. Uh, we get angry uh, about the political instability in our nation. These are all rooted or tied to safety and security inside of us. Uh, we lie awake at night wondering, um, are our kids going to be safe? There's all sorts of things that uh, eat at us that are tied to this issue of safety and security. At the end of the day, uh, you might be a massive risk taker. Let me just show of hands. Who's a risk taker? Okay, yeah, a couple. I figured we could create a group together. Had lots of fun. Um, <laughs> at the end of the day, um, this isn't necessarily about the ability to take risks um, or not take risks. Um, the reality is that every one of us deep down inside um, has a desire, a longing, you could say, for safety and security um, um, built into our hardwiring. Um, it's a longing that I believe has been placed there by God. In and of itself, the desire for safety, the desire for security um, in your job, in, in your family, in your marriage, um, in your life, in your health, it's not wrong. The desire has been given to you by God. It's a good desire. Sometimes we pursue that desire, the satisfaction of that desire in sinful ways because our desires have been affected by something called sin, right? So it's not necessarily that the desire may be wrong. It's just that there may be an infection inside of the desire that causes us to pursue it in ways that don't honor God. Um, we might pursue safety this way. Think about this. Might pursue safety by uh, greedily holding on to our money because we don't want our bank account to run dry, right? Um, we might do this um, by staying in a sinful relationship that we ought not to be in because that's safe. 
A lot of us might use the word comfortable. We don't want to be uncomfortable. But the reality is that just might feel like the safest place for you. Uh, when in reality, anything that is sin is not safe by definition. Um, maybe isolation. How about that? You isolate yourself from true community um, because you're afraid of being hurt. Feel safer not to engage with someone and get into a deep relationship because by doing so, um, you risk getting hurt. Um, and so you kind of isolate yourself, keep people at arm's length. Um, these are all ways that I think uh, the desire for safety, the desire for security um, can be pursued in sinful ways. Again, desire for safety, it's not necessarily wrong at all. As I said before, I believe that God has created us with a desire for safety um, so that when we come to the realization, when you think about this, if, if he created us with that longing, uh, then when we come to a realization that we are actually pursuing the satisfaction or the placation of that desire in a sinful way, then what do you do at that point? Uh, the gospel and the Bible um, uh, calls us to find our satisfaction in Christ. Now, in the church, we've turned this gospel message thing into something that is either an add-on to the end of the message so that unbelievers can get saved, or we've turned it into the camp tradition at the end of camp where you get saved, or uh, we turn it into an evangelistic strategy whereby you're going to work through the five points of Romans, not Calvinism, um, but the Romans road so you can get this person saved and mark them down and get them in and dunk them and now they're Christians. We've turned the gospel into that rather than the high points of the gospel being something that affects and influences the way that we live. Now I get on that tangent, why? Because the church is really good at chasing after things uh, that have nothing to do with the gospel. So when you come back to this and you think about our desire for safety, what should you do when you realize that you are pursuing safety and security in ways that are not honoring to the Lord. Um, the next step for us is to confess that as sin, specifically, right? It's a specific confession. Lord, I have sinned in this way. I have sought safety by isolating myself from those who can help me. Uh, Lord, I, I, I need to confess to you that I have sought safety and security by holding on to my money rather than being generous. Lord, I, I need to confess to you that I have sought security and safety in XYZ. Looking at pornography, getting trashed, whatever it may be. There's all sorts of ways that we seek security. So we start with a confession of sin and then move into receiving forgiveness from the Lord. And you might be saying, what does all this have to do with safe cities? Hang in there. Hang in there. Confess sin. Receive forgiveness. Find refuge in the Lord. And the problem with us in the church is that we love to find refuge in the things that we do. I say this often. Go out of here. Do three or four things. Treat your husband right. Treat your wife better. Do five devotions with your kids this week. Pat yourself on the back. Even if we don't say that explicitly, it's what happens deep down inside of us, right? Because we want to 
somehow give ourselves credit for being good. We know that we're bad. We know that somewhere deep down inside. But we want to give ourselves the credit for being good. And the reality is you and I don't have the capability of being good apart from Christ. So there's a confession of sin, there's a reception of forgiveness, and then there's finding refuge in God. These safe cities in our Joshua text, go back to that, think about that. They definitely served as a very practical purpose in their day. And we also follow suit in our day um, in many different ways by providing safe places for refugees in our society. Refugees of different sorts and kinds and types. I don't think arguments can be made from this uh, for a lot of things, but we do provide safe places. Um, I think the clearest Christological interpretation, that's a big word, but it's the idea that all of Scripture isn't about what you and I are supposed to go do. All of Scripture is supposed to be about what Christ has done on the cross. So if that's true, then... We need to interpret this Old Testament text through the lens of Jesus. Christological interpretation rather than moralistic interpretation that makes you feel good so that you can pat yourself on the back. Follow me? So if we're going to find a Christological interpretation of this passage and say this passage really points to Jesus, then we've got to recognize that every one of us desires safety and that we've all pursued it sinfully Therefore, what God has done is he's given himself to us in the cross of Christ to be our refuge, to be our hiding place from sin. Your enemies are not the abortion clinic down the street. They're not. Your enemies are not the Democrat across the aisle. They're not. Your enemies aren't the Republican across the aisle either. Your enemy isn't the unbeliever across the street that you have to convince to make them a believer. But sadly, the church has made those people our enemies. Your enemies are Satan and sin and the world. Those are your enemies, and they've been beaten at the cross. That's where you run to find refuge is at the cross of Christ. This is what I believe leads the psalmist in Psalm 62, to proclaim, for God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation. I don't get the sense that David is singing about summer camp. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken on God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times. All times. Oh, people, pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. So the question I leave you with on that point is this. Where are you longing for safety and security right now, and how are you getting after it? Where are you longing for safety and security right now, and what are you doing to get after it? Because what you're doing to get after it is going to show you where your true trust lies. Second thing I want us to think about is worship. Think about worship for a few minutes. Question in this regard is, um, 
How serious are you about worship? How serious are you about worship? I want to get something straight right off the bat. Worship is not merely something that we experience with lights that set the mood and emotionally moving music. It's not worship. Worship is an encounter with the living God that transforms us from consumers into contributors. In other words, when when the Bible talks about worship, the Bible doesn't talk about an experience that serves to get you into the presence of God. Worship uh, is talked about in, in the Bible as a transforming encounter with God as you bring yourself as a living, contributing sacrifice. So, I'm going to press this button. How serious are you about worship? In our Joshua text, we've read uh, this small portion of how serious God is about worship. What he did was he dispersed worship leaders uh, to their own cities with their own pasture lands throughout the nation of Israel, right? Uh, Israel uh, is literally supporting Her worship leaders, her pastors, priests, shepherds. And they're doing that through the proportionate giving of their physical, financial possessions. That's what we see happening. God uh, gave uh, the land to Israel, gave it to them just like he gave you and me a paycheck. Problem is, you and I think we own the paycheck because we work so hard for it. But the reality is you wouldn't get that paycheck if you didn't have that job. And who gave you that job? God did. Right? Right? So at the end of the day, same picture, we live in it today. God seems to take the topic of worship very seriously. In fact, there's an entire book in the Bible um, devoted to instructing these Levitical priests, these priests we're talking about, entire book. Anybody know what the name of the book is? Leviticus. Y'all are awesome. Leviticus. Um... It's kind of funny because, you know, when you look at the book of Numbers, you think it's going to be a book that's about numbers because it's named Numbers, but it's really not. It's really not about numbers. It's about wandering around the wilderness. (laughs) um, Leviticus (coughs) seems like it might be a little bit boring because it's just full of all these administrative rules and policies. This is how you're going to lead my people to worship me. That's basically broad overview of Leviticus for the Levitical tribes. It's a... Job description, if you will. Policy about what it means to be a priest, to be a worship leader. Outlines their duties for leading and for shaping the nation as a worshiping nation. So the book of Leviticus is where you find all those instructions. And here's my question. Do you know, just like pop quiz, okay? It'd be like when you're a kid and you get to go to quiz bowl or whatever they call it and they're like, you're your little kid, and you're sitting at the table, and they got the little buzzer in front of you, and they're like, how many years did Jesus walk on the earth? Bing! Right? That kind of quiz bowl thing, right? Um, so put your thinking caps on this way. Think that you have a diener bell in front of you on your table. Um, just don't knock the lights off the table if you do this, okay? Here's the question. The question is this. Do you know how many passages in Leviticus describe the worship setting for Israel? Do you know how many of those passages in Leviticus describe the worship setting as one that is full of mood lighting, emotional experience, and great music to get you in the mood for meeting God? 
zero, you get a cookie <laughs> and a star on your salvation chart in heaven, which can be removed if you sin too much, right? <laughs> so hope you know that is high level of sarcasm from the pulpit, which I think is a spiritual gift when used rightly. Back on track. You'd be right if you answered zero, okay? Uh, here, you want to know what the entire book is actually full of? Again, just think about worship. We just experienced it. We got mood lighting. We got pretty good music. We have some emotionalism here and there. Not emotionalism because emotionalism is bad. We have emotions. Emotions aren't bad. So we've got some of the things that I'm railing against, right? Um, do you know um, what is in the book of Leviticus when it comes to the worship gathering? <clears throat> Entire book is full of sacrifice. It's full of death. It's full of confession of sin. Like actual entire congregations confessing sins to one another. There are churches today that I think probably knock this out of the park better than we do. Um, that during that three minute time, you would actually walk up to one another and confess your sin from that week so that it creates, it shapes the culture um, of people. Rather than than what we did today, which, Dave, thank you for leading us that way. I'm not picking on you. I'm picking on us as a church. Rather than be like, hey, how was your week? What was the greatest thing? You like cheeseburgers? What great movie did you watch? I led that, so I'm owning that, okay? What would it be like if we used that time to walk up to one another face-to-face, people you don't know, and say, you know what? I struggled with lust this week. What if you walked up to somebody and said, you know what? I wanted to kill my kid this week. What if you walked up to somebody and you said, you know what? I didn't balance my checkbook right this week, so I bounced five checks because I mishandled my money. What if you walked up this? I mean, the list goes on and on and on. I don't know what your specific sin struggle is, but what if we actually, as a church family, got stinking real about confession of sin? What if we got real about that during those times? It's part of worship, right? It's part of worship. So that entire book is full of sacrifice and death, confession of sin, and blood. I can't, I can't even continue to describe to you how much blood is in the book of Leviticus. We've, I, sorry, Chris, I know blood, a lot of us would pass out if we saw the kind of blood that was, I probably would too. Um, there was a lot of blood there. And all of that, all of what's happening in those instructions to Levitical priests, the worship leaders who are now being dispersed throughout the nation of Israel, it all finds its ultimate fulfillment, its ultimate culmination, not in great lights and music and comfy. I mean, if we, what if we just turned off the heat one week and we had to sit here in our jackets? Well, we did that yesterday at the men's gathering. It was wretched. <laughs> Nobody fell asleep, though. <laughs> What if? I just I think about these things. This is a burden for me. I, I pray that it's a burden to you, and I pray that it's biblical. I think it is. All of this finds its ultimate fulfillment in the cross of Christ, where his body was broken, his blood was poured out so that we could come close to God on our own and be transformed in that process. You don't get transformed by doing the law. You get transformed in the presence of Christ. And what's going to drive you to the presence of Christ? Not the next newest, latest, cool program or book. A realization of your brokenness and your sin. That's what's going to do it. 
<clears throat> so when you and I show up to uh, church gatherings, and I say gatherings, not services, why? Because these aren't services where consumers get fed. That was one of the stupidest things I've heard, and I don't know how it came out. This isn't a place where we get served, so to speak. There is service that happens here. We aren't showing up merely for an encounter with God, not merely. Um, showing up here to share our six-day-a-week God encounters in community with others. Have you encountered God this week? Is the question. Have you heard from him this week? And if you have, what did he say to you? Have you opened your Bible? Have you spent time in prayer? Is there a passion inside of you to draw close to God and be in his presence whereby you are being changed and transformed? That's the question. Worship is about encountering God in the day-to-day activities of our lives and then sharing that encounter with other brothers and sisters in Christ as well as those who don't know Christ. This is what, this is what leads the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, to simply say, I appeal. What's he saying? I'm arguing for this. He's passionate when he's saying, I appeal to you. I'm making my appeal. I pray that you would hear me on this. That's what he's saying. Where is that appeal coming from? Just the fact that Paul got up and drank too much coffee that morning? No. That appeal, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. By the mercy of God. Me, God withheld from you and I what we deserve. He did this in the cross of Christ. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Interesting. We love that passage. Read the rest of the chapter. Because immediately after that, what does Paul do? In context, here's what he does. He launches into a description of our spiritual gifts. Kind of funky, isn't it, that he would tie spiritual gifts to our spiritual worship and the giving of ourselves? Why would Paul do that? Because the using of our spiritual gifts is part of our spiritual worship. It's how we give ourselves away. You and I are gifts to one another. Sunday gathering is not meant to be something that we come and participate in whereby we just get fed and walk out the door and go home and take care of our family. It's never meant to be that way. And yet we Americans have turned it into something that it's not. You know what that's called? It's called idolatry. And it ripped the nation of Israel apart. Why am I passionate about this? Because we're studying Joshua and the fulfillment of them getting the promised land. And I've said it over and over again. You know what happens later? All-out war. When Jesus shows up on the scene, what do you think Israel is longing for at that time? They're longing for all of Israel to be brought back together and for oppression to leave, and they believe that Jesus is going to do that. They're going to drive Rome out. We're going to get reconstituted back in our homeland. Missed the point completely. Why? Because they were focused on the physical, not the spiritual. There was no spiritual transformation in their lives. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And immediately after that, Paul launches into a description of the spiritual gifts. You know what comes after that? In the context of Romans 12, 
true marks of a Christian. You know what that tells me? That there are marks that would let you know that somebody is a false Christian. That's in the context of our favorite passage about worship that we often quote as pastors and Christians. Worship is not what we have made it to be. So how serious are you about worship? Would your coworkers and your family members and your friends know that you are a person who takes worship seriously? Not talking about how much you talk about going to church gatherings or how cool your church is because it's got mood lighting. Forbid we ever had smoke because we will not do that. Not in the conventional sense anyways, but I won't go there because that's offensive. I'm not talking about how much you talk about going to church gatherings. Talking about how holy you are living in front of your coworkers, your family members, your friends. Could someone actually spot you as a person of worship? By how much time you spend talking about not your church or your church family, which are all important things, but about your actual legitimate encounter with Jesus that week, that day, where you heard from him. How much time do you spend talking about that? What are your daily rhythms of seeking the voice of God? And what have you heard from him this week? See, here's the thing. Last thing on this, and we'll move on because we're out of time. Then if reading your Bible, this is a hard statement. If reading your Bible, spending time in prayer on your own to encounter the living God on your own, if that's too inconvenient for you, I wonder about your comprehension of your own sin. And I wonder about your comprehension of the sacrifice that happened at that cross. Jesus gave his life for you and for me. It's a gracious, merciful thing that he did. And we don't need to be beaten into spending time with Jesus. But if that's where you're at, it makes me wonder. I ask this question of myself when I get bored with God's word. Man, what is my actual comprehension of my own sin and the sacrifice that it took to set me free so that I could be a transformed worshiper of God? How serious are you about worship? Finally, I want you to think about God's promise for the last few moments of our time. What promises of God do you need to trust in today? What promises of God do you need to trust in today? When you think about this Joshua text that we're uh, looking at, um, uh, and it tells us that the Lord gave Israel the land that he had promised to them. He gave them rest on every side as he gave them victory over their enemies. Not one of God's promises failed to come true. Everything happened just as the Lord said it would. What God promises, God makes happen. Now, I have to be honest with you. I would hope that you would expect nothing different. After studying and preaching last week's text, chapter 15 through 19, which was the largest section of text I've ever preached, I felt more than a little discouraged. I don't know about you. This is a discouraging sermon to preach. Just a rough one. That deep evaluation of Israel's rebellion, sin, failure to completely possess all the Lord gave them, I mean... The Lord's fine. He's good, right? He, he did what he said he was going to do. It's on Israel. It's on you and I for not possessing everything 
that God's promised us is we walk in sin and rebellion. So I looked at that, and as I thought about it, even after preaching it, um, there's, for every point of laziness, uh, for, for every point of rebellion, every point of disobedience or selfishness that I saw in Israel during this study, there's at least multiple points of the same failures and sins in my own life. Isn't that true for you as well? If you're honest, in my profession as a pastor, I catch myself yo-yoing back and forth between impatience, cynicism, anger, passively dreaming about a better job, if I'm going to be honest, one that pays well, where I can support my family well, one where you don't stand in front of 50 different bosses every Sunday. Just be honest. I do dream about that sometimes. There's not one Sunday that I get up to preach and I'm not at least in possible conflict with one or two or more people in this room, right? Like, I'm not laying myself in front of you and saying, look how great I am, just letting you know I struggle with some of the same things that you struggle with in terms of vocation. <coughs> My uh, role as a husband and a father, I find myself stretched between laziness with spiritual disciplines, praying with my kids enough, reading the scriptures to them enough, not to earn a pat on the back, but just simply because I want to do that. It just I can be very inconsistent in that way. Or relational isolation would be another piece of that too for me that I struggle with. Okay, I'm privileged to spend most of my days with the Bible open with people. It's a privilege. When I get home, to be honest, the last thing I want to do is open the Bible with people again. I want to check out. So that I, I recognize. I'm being very honest with you about my sin. My hope is that as I model that, that I can say to you, come follow me as I follow Jesus. Go do the same thing. I'd go on and on about the connections between Israel's sin, my sin. I could live in depression, despair. I think we all probably have a struggle with that as we look at sin. <clears throat> said it last week. I believe it's true that without a recognition of sin, there can be no confession, and without a confession of sin, there can be no repentance, and without repentance, there can be no salvation. So somebody who walks up to me and says, I'm saved, I'm a Christian, are you? You got sin to confess? Nope. I don't know if you're a Christian or not, just to be honest with you. Just don't know that I believe you. Because if you're not thinking about your sin, you know who you're not thinking about? The true biblical Jesus who gave his life for you. You're thinking about a fairy tale Jesus. That's my concern, especially in our American culture. Because in our American culture, Jesus is white, got blonde hair and blue eyes, and loves babies. So I think we need to recognize our sin, we need to confess, we need to repent from it as we turn to Christ in faith constantly. That's, that's how gospel shapes people. Now, did strike me this week as I was thinking about this. Um, I know I'm way out of time, and I'm sorry. This is just an issue we have. But you know what? If I die today, when I walk out of this pulpit, if I drop dead here, and the only thing that God looks at me and goes, Joe, why couldn't you be more respectful of people's time with your sermons? 
I'm I'm okay. <laughs> and if, if you need to go, I, we won't talk bad about you. I promise. Question. This is what struck me. Sorry for taking up more time. Here we go. Why would anyone want to recognize their sin in the first place? Why? Why? Unless you're morbid and all you do is sit around and think about your failures all day, which I do a lot of that, so... Why? Otherwise, um, my thought is most people probably don't get all jacked up about thinking about sin, right? Uh, I'm thinking rainbows, uh, unicorns, and social problems. Those are more fun to think about, right? Uh, you like this. The, the, the train wreck of the so-called impeachment trial recently. <laughs> That's more fun to think about than thinking about your sin for most of us. I mean, if we're honest... <coughs> How do I know? Because we talk about it. And doesn't the scriptures tell us that words of our mouth prove what's happening inside of our heart? So my issue is not head, my issue is heart. <coughs> Certainly love to think about what our next purchase is, or our next pursuit, more than we love to think about sin. So why, question, just right there, why would anybody want to talk about sin? Why would you want to actually get real and talk about your sin this week? What, what would motivate someone to do that? Unless it's out of some weird preconceived, beat yourself down all day long, talk bad about yourself, negative self-talk type of thing, right? If it's not that, what would actually motivate someone to talk about their own personal sin in a transparent and vulnerable and authentic way? <clears throat> Why would we actually do that? Um, thought about that this week. And the answer that I landed on from this text, <coughs> especially in, in recognition of last week, where you see Israel only possessing 10% of the land they'd been promised and given, um, what did God provide to them to give them the opportunity to be motivated to confess that sin and turn from it? What did he give them? He gave them the final statement that we have in our text today. He reminded them that the Lord gave. And catch the amount of times as you read it. Catch the amount of times that it says something along the lines of the Lord did this. The Lord did this. The Lord did this. The Lord did this. The Lord gave. The Lord gave. The Lord gave. The emphasis is on the Lord being generous and true and faithful, right? The Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers and they took possession of it and they settled there and the Lord gave them rest on every side as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of their enemies had withstood them for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. The focus of these final verses is not on Israel's failure as we saw in the previous five verses, it's on the faithful promises of God. The faithful promises of God are the little exclamation point at the end of a long portion of narrative that basically highlights Israel's sin. So think for a minute about the exclamation point at the end of your exclamation of sin. Poor pitiful me, I am a sinner, I screwed it up this week. Where's the exclamation point? It's God's promises. I sinned, but God has promised to provide a way out through the cross of Christ. And in that, I take refuge. 
I hide myself there. I find rest there. Not in walking out of any church building or gathering to do more things. To know more things. It's to rest in the finished work of Christ. The entire book of Joshua is saturated with God's promises in contrast to Israel's sin. The entire story of the entire Bible is saturated with that for heaven's sake. But what do we love to do? We love to cherry pick passages and make them about this and make them about that out of context. And it's meaningless. And it's created no actual transformation in so-called God's people. That's a burden for me. Regardless of where you're at today, 15 seconds into your journey with Jesus or 15 years into your journey with Jesus, the reality is that God's promises are meant to be the bookends of your sin. God's faithful promises, I believe, are the motivators that help you want to recognize your sin, to want to confess your sin, to want to turn in repentant faith towards Christ. So I ask one more time, what promise from God do you need to trust in today? In conclusion, uh, I contemplated this sermon all throughout the week and the implications of it kept landing on some of my favorite promises from God in all the scriptures. They're way too numerous to share with you today, but I will share two that are most close to my heart. First one says this. There is, therefore, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For as much as you've heard me rail about our failures, pray that you would hear from your Father in heaven that there is no condemnation. Let that promise be an invitation to gospel depth in your life. It's Romans 8.1. The second one is from Joshua, where God says, I will be with you. You're never alone. I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. One of the best Valentine's cards I ever got was from one of my kiddos. And just said, basically, Daddy, happy Valentine's Day. Don't forget, you're never alone. Life can be lonely. And one of the loneliest places is when you stand in the spotlight. And, and that goes for you. Where's your place of loneliness at right now? And where, where, where is that place where you sense the condemnation of Satan in your life rather than the promises of God's word? Don't listen to the condemnation of Satan because it will cause you to hide in places that are sinful. It may even look good and feel good, but they're sinful. Listen to the promises of God and let that motivate you to face your sin head on and to rest in the arms of Christ who loves you. Look to the cross of Christ, and what I think you find is you'll find safety, you'll find worship, and you'll find promises. Look to the cross of Christ, and you'll find a God who is strategic about your safety. <coughs> He's serious about your worship. And His promises never fail. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time. Pray, God, that you would... Uh, Continue to speak to us over the next few moments as we end our time in songs of worship and praise to you and receive communion.
trust you to do that work in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.